Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I am so excited to be able to study this book. I, I taught it to a group of college students several years ago. And I felt like when I finished the book, I felt like I should start over. Because I, I, I understood way more of the flow and the thrust of what Solomon was doing at the end. But it took me uh, the better part of a year to teach through it to really get a grip on understanding it as I do now. And even now, I'm feeling like maybe we should finish and start over. Solomon in chapter two is doing something very interesting. Let me remind you, it's been a few weeks. Solomon, the most wise man who's ever lived except for Jesus Christ, was given wisdom by the Lord. You know that narrative of 1 Kings 3 and 4 where he's given wisdom. The Lord says, ask me anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he said, I want a heart of wisdom. And the motive comes out to to know good and evil, to know right from wrong, and to lead your people. Not only did he ask for the right thing, he asked with the right motive. Well, because God said, um, uh, because because he did not ask, rather, for uh, riches and and fame, uh, God said, I'm going to bless you with riches and fame. So he's wise and rich and famous. You see him in the early part of his life uh, displaying that wisdom in his uh, it, it really amazing effort to, to train Rehoboam to be his successor. I think his training manual for young Rehoboam, his son, is the book of Proverbs. But as you read in 1 Kings chapter 11 and 12, Rehoboam uh, learned the mistakes of Saul, the mistakes of David, the mistakes of Solomon, and even added to his own, the kingdom was divided, and he had a war with Jeroboam, and then you have the northern and the southern kingdoms that began right after Solomon's death. Ecclesiastes is not written, was not written, at the height of Solomon's climb to his fame and fortune and his, his position, really on a world stage where people would come and say, yeah, teach us what you know. Ecclesiastes was written at the end of his life, after he had, in our words, crashed and burned. He had experimented with the world. We find out that he had a 1,000 women in his life, 700 wives, 300 concubines. We find out that he was, he was pursuing every sort of pleasure with the wisdom, wealth, and fame that he been given, given by, been, given, been given by God. He was exploring every possible extension of that enjoyment. Kingdom goes in decline. He does what the Lord doesn't uh, uh, require. And he does, goes exactly against what the Lord does require. And in 1 Kings 11, it says the thing that... Solomon had done was evil on the side of the Lord. He married these foreign women. He created these foreign treaties. He uh, uh, depended on his own ingenuity, not on God, for the security and strength of Israel. And his kingdom crumbled literally from his hand. Ecclesiastes, I think, is the, is the swan song. It's Solomon at the end of his life looking back. We know from chapter 12, verse 1, that it's a sermon. And it's actually a sermon given to young people. Some people read the book of Ecclesiastes and say, that's way too philosophical. That's second story stuff. I I live in the basement, maybe the first floor occasionally. I can't understand this. Remember that this was written so that students could understand. It's not hard to understand. It's hard to apply. It's, It's in your face. It is absolutely raw. It is an assessment of life unlike anything else in the Bible. In fact, it's been called the black sheep of the Bible. 
Well, Solomon begins in chapter one, he just lays out this fact that as the creation has these cycles, it has weather cycles, it has seasonal cycles, life has cycles. And the cycle is you pursue something that makes you happy, it brings you temporary satisfaction, and then it goes away. You pursue something else that makes you happy, it brings temporary satisfaction, and then it goes away. In chapter two, he rehearses an experiment that he actually played out in his life in which he took the pleasures of the world takes a half a dozen pleasures that were, were remarkably contemporary to both Solomon and us and tests this pleasure, each one of them, with his wisdom. If anyone was going to see if there was gain to be had out of these pleasures under the sun, that's Solomon's word for um, things that happen outside the garden and this side of eternity, it was going to be the wisest person in the world. So he tries these pleasures out. He says, I tried these while my mind was still guiding me wisely. You can see that in chapter uh, 2 verse 1. I said to myself, that's the first problem, right? Anytime you have a conversation where you say, I said to myself, you know there's trouble. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with, ple- with pleasure. He actually articulates to himself a plan and a strategy to, to extract whatever pleasure he can out of life. So enjoy yourself. Have at it. See what all of your fame and fortune and wisdom can get you and gain you to give you what everybody says will bring satisfaction. So he tries fun. I said of laughter, it's madness. Pleasure, what does it accomplish? Then he tries uh, alcohol, getting high, getting drunk in, in, in verse uh, three. Tries materialism in verses four, five, six, and uh, seven. Climaxes with the silver and gold in verse eight. And we drop into the middle of verse 8, and we see a little test that he, he applies that's, uh, that's remarkably contemporary to us, and that is entertainment. Look in the middle of verse 8. I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings, treasure of provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers. That's it. I provided for myself male and Female singers, that's entertainment. What does this have to do with us? Well, we find ourselves in a remarkably entertainment-saturated world, do we not? I did some uh, research. There's no way. We would be here all night if I had tried to read all this to you. Some of this might be fascinating to you, though. The percentage of U.S. households with at least one television. Percentage? Any guesses? 98 Percentage of U.S. households, this was very interesting. I thought I read it wrong, but just, just listen to this statistic. The percentage of U.S. households with two television sets is 34. The percentage of households with three or more television sets is 40%. So more people have three or more than have just two. Hours per day that the television set is on in the US, average U.S. home Seven hours, 12 minutes. Percentage of Americans that regularly watch television while eating dinner, 68%. Chance that an American falls asleep with the TV on at least three nights of the week is one in four. Percentage of Americans who say they watch too much television, 51%. Is there a disconnect there? 
just some, some uh, random statistics here. Children and education with regard to um, entertainment and television. Uh, number of minutes per week that the average ch- American child ages 2 to 11 watches television. Average minutes a week, 1,197. Number of minutes per week that parents spend in meaningful conversation with their children, 38.5. Now, I know these are averages, and it doesn't reflect the church, and certainly not your home, so we won't go there. Percentage of children ages 5 to 17 who have a television set in their bedroom, 52%. Percentage of children ages 2 to 5 who have a television set in their bedroom, 25%. 2 to 5 Percentage of parents who would like to limit their children's television watching, 73%. Again, quite a disconnect. Um, There's so much of this. Uh, Percentage of fourth graders who watch more than 14 hours of television per per week, 81%. Hours per year, think of this, hours per year that the average student, junior high and high school, this is according to uh, Nielsen, Average hours per year that the junior high and high schooler will watch television is about 1,500 hours. Hours per year the average American youth spends in school is 900. I, well, I gotta read that one. Uh, chance that an American parent requires that children do their homework before watching television one in 12. We can go on and on. There's a whole set of statistics. Uh, Nielsen has all these listed out. You can see them on, on, on their website. Number of violent acts that the average American child sees on television by age 18 is a quarter million, 250,000. Number of murders witnessed by children on television by the age 18 is 16,000 murders. I think most of those were during Star Wars. Percentage of Hollywood executives who believe there's a link between television violence and real life violence. Think about this. The percentage of Hollywood directors, executives rather, who believe there is a real live link between entertainment violence and real life violence, 80% of them think that. And yet they're still cranking it out. Uh, I'm, it's not worth going into all this. Uh, um, it's just from... Um, Abandoned in the Wasteland, Children, Television, and the First Amendment by Newton Minow. He says, by the first grade, most children have spent the equivalent of three school years in front of the television set. Now, I'm just picking on television because I grabbed these statistics. But it's more than that. It's, and it's not just television, and it's not just movies, and it's not just media, it's not just the internet. It's the content. Uh, you know as well as I do that a... Um, there was a, a, a movie released this last weekend that has gotten national and international attention. Uh, and what's amazing, Fifty Shades of, of Grey, you've no doubt heard of that. Um, I was asked this, this last week, should a Christian go see that? No. No. <laughs> under any circumstances, under any justification, no. You know what that is? What you're seeing with that movie, just, just, just witness, step back from the culture and look. You're watching the popularization of pornography. Whereas it used to be shameful, it used to be hidden, then it was just relegated to the internet. Now people will walk in uh, 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 with, with a crowd of people into a movie theater to watch. 
It's not just the amount of time, it's the content. And we have to ask ourselves if we're content being entertained by things for which our Savior died. Are we being entertained by things for which Jesus died? I hear people say, ah, it doesn't bother me. You know what? It bothers Jesus. What is our standard? Those are just statistics. They have an overwhelming message, though. Something is attracting an awful lot of people to the couch, to the movie theater, to the, to the, uh, the computer screen. TVs, movies, Netflix, magazines, music, internet, uh, books, sports, probably another dozen mediums of entertainment relentlessly pound and pound just like a sledgehammer on soft pewter. And if you don't have your guard up, it can lull you into thinking, oh, that's not so bad because we begin saying, that's, no, not, that's not as bad as what it used to be. What is our comparison? What is our comparison? Sometimes I wonder, what, what would the Apostle Paul say if you're walking around with us today? Better question is, what would Jesus say if he were? In his book that was written in 1963, if you want a fun read, uh, it's, I remember reading this, I couldn't put it down. It's written in 1963, it's uh, by Daniel Bornstein, it's called The Image. Uh, he outlines with just convicting clarity this subtle shift in the culture back then from heroes to celebrities in, entertain, in entertainment. Think about this. It used to be that men and women were respected, admired, followed, emulated because of some intrinsic value in their character, their bravery. When I grew up, my heroes were astronauts. I had an astronaut helmet. I wanted to be an astronaut. I had a picture of Neil Armstrong that I was convinced he signed, she didn't, uh, on my uh, chest of drawers. I, I, those, were, those were heroes. They risked their lives for scientific advancement. Now we throw worship, not heroes. We throw them at what we call celebrities. In this book, Bornstein says this about celebrities. A celebrity, this is interesting. A celebrity is simply someone who is well known for being well known. It's a great insight. They're well known for being well known. We're coming up on the, what they call the awards, the Oscar, Grammy, Academy things, whatever they are, where people in movies, which one is the movie one? Oscars, thank you. <clears throat> Coming up, there's lots of chatter on that. I keep seeing it on, on my USA Today. And Have you ever really thought about acting? I'm not anti-acting. I, th I think that there's, a, there's an art to it, and I appreciate uh, someone who can act well. But do you understand an actor is really just a very good pretender? So we give awards for pretending. That's what the Academy Awards are. We'll give you an award for pretending best. Now, I know what you're saying. Oh, here he comes. He's gonna say, unplug your TV, never go see a movie again. That's not where I'm gonna land at all. Not at all. We're gonna land where Solomon landed. He tried entertainment, which we'll look at very specifically in a minute, and he said, what lasting satisfaction does it have? Is it ever wrong to go see a movie? Let me, let me just say it as clear as I can. That's not what the Bible says. Is it wrong to own a television set? I hope not. I have one. I watch it in the fall for football and then the news occasionally after that. I, I'm, and it's not fair. I was talking to Kim about this. It's not fair for me to beat up on entertainment because I have, I have zero ability to really enjoy 
movies. It's, it's not a moral thing. I just keep knowing that, that they're pretending. And, and it bothers me when you see the collar on a guy different in one scene than the other. You think they shot that on different days. And those things, uh, those things bother me. There's a word for that, Seth. What is that word? Continuity issues, right? Those things bother me. So I'm, I'm not a big, big judge. And I just, I don't do it. I really tried. I honestly tried. I, I tried to give my wife a Valentine's gift probably 10, 12 years ago. We sat down on Valentine's night. The boys were younger, so it's probably a lot older than that. But they put them to bed. And we turned on the, this was a, the, the tape, the VCR tape. We plugged it in with one of those Jane Austen movies. It was a girl's name, Anna or Emma. Yeah, Emma. And I tried. I tried to watch this with my beloved wife. That didn't work out so well. I didn't know who liked who. I didn't know what was going on. It was a problem. I tried Green Gable Annie one night. That didn't work at all. <laughs> so I'm not against these things, but I want to give you some qualification. It's not that I sit around, uh, uh, you know, I'm anti-artistic expression. Entertainment plays an immeasurably large, influential role in our culture. Think about this. It influences what we wear, what we say, how we eat, what we eat, how we cut our hair, how we think, what we do with our time, how we spend our money, what's in, what's out, what we think of others, how we view the opposite sex, what we sing, all summed up. Entertainment has tremendous influence on what we think and how we think. It's just important to know that we don't have to throw it all out the window, but it's important to understand that. Now, this should strike you as incredible when you consider the definition of entertainment, okay? I told you all that to get to this definition. Have your seatbelt on? Right out of Webster, Noah Webster's dictionary. Here you go. Entertain, quote, to hold one's attention and to amuse, okay? Let me give you a little Greek lesson. From the word amuse. It comes from an alpha privative with a Greek and a Latin phrase. Ah, muse. Ah means not. Muse means think. So the definition of entertainment is not thinking. Now, I understand that there are some things that can make you, make you think. I, I'm not saying it doesn't, but understand that's the, that's the, the definition of entertainment. What's a Christian to do with the entertainment industry as we, as we know it? How do we evaluate it? Solomon has an answer for us here in verse 8. His conclusion is simple. His conclusion is profound. Uh, if anyone should have known the emptiness of entertainment as a satisfying feature of life, it would have been Solomon. He had the wisest mind, the ability to understand what it has intrinsically, artistically to offer. It's critical to understand that context. Solomon is applying greater powers than you and I could ever have of artistry and evaluation to this medium of entertainment. You say you're kind of picking on movies and, and um, uh, TV. Well, that, that's, those are the best statistics that you can find, but we could talk about music. That's where Solomon went. Music just doesn't satisfy. It's nice. I like music. Uh, but let me ask you a, a question. Well, I remember we were moving out here. We were... I had a box of albums. We, we called them LPs. Remember those? And uh, my, uh, one of my sons, I was moving them when we were getting ready to move to Kansas, and he found the box. He says, Dad, these are the biggest CDs I've ever seen. <laughs> it's changing. 
Uh, now you don't even buy CDs much more. You just download it, you get Spotify, and you have access to everything. It, it's, just, it's just remarkable to see how fast the entertainment industry is, is changing. But let me ask you a quick question on satisfaction. You ever bought an album? Ever bought a CD? A cassette tape? An eight-track tape? There are songs that I still hear where it clicks in the eight-track format. If you're under 40, you just don't even understand what I said. Have you ever bought a piece of music, listened to it, and thought, that's it? I will never need any more music as long as I live. I, am total, I can listen to this on loop 24-7 for the next 30 years and never get tired of it. Does that happen? It doesn't satisfy in a lasting way. There's nothing wrong with music. I listen to music every day. I have great, great music that I listen to when I study. It's, it's, the issue is pursuing it as, as a means of finding satisfaction, a means of finding happiness outside of God. Look back at chapter one, verse 18. This is the key. In much wisdom, there's much grief, and increasing knowledge increases it results in increasing pain. In other words, the more wise Solomon became, the wiser a person becomes, the greater they see the gap between worldly offers of satisfaction and their inability to satisfy it. Solomon had chosen a disciplined pursuit of meaning under the sun, outside the garden, this side of heaven, but his pursuit became an experiment in finding meaning and lasting pleasure apart from God's blessing and apart from God giving it as a gift. He plums into these depths of pleasure to see if any experience could bring lasting, longing satisfaction. As we've said, he was looking for life in all the wrong places. He continually says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's steam off a cup of coffee. It's there for a moment, and then it's gone. His experiment was to test pleasure rather than to look at or trust in God's revelation. That's the real issue. Now, in chapter 1, verse 13, um, contrary to contemporary health and wealth preachers, God has actually given us what the New American Standard calls a grievous task. The King James calls it a sore travail. The New King James calls it a burdensome task. The NIV calls it a heavy burden. The RSV calls it an unhappy business. The New Jerusalem Bible calls it a wearisome task. What is it? Life. Life is hard and it's going to be and listen it's designed by God to be hard so that we don't want to stay here forever and heaven is actually attractive to those who believe in his son let's drill down into this um this experiment it's very simple and this Solomon tries pleasure with these a band male and female singers music he shows some hidden poison there Let's unpack it in a simple short phrase in verse eight. As we do so, I wanna give you three ways to evaluate entertainment's value. Three ways to evaluate entertainment's value. We're gonna be looking over Solomon's shoulder this, this, uh, this evening. I'm not saying that entertainment is all wrong. I'm not saying any form of it is wrong, bad, evil, sinful. It's when entertainment controls our thinking and begins to control our decision-making and our life more than it should. Then we have the same problem that Solomon had. Number one. Recognize the selfish focus of entertainment. Recognize the selfish focus of entertainment. Look at verse eight. He says, I for myself. I provided for myself. 
Solomon wanted entertainment for his own heart and soul. Entertainment is like that. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever uh, told somebody, I know that you like this certain uh, singer. I'm gonna get the CD. I'm gonna get the download for you and I'll listen to it and, and I'll enjoy it and then tell you how good it is. Do you enjoy entertainment for someone else? No, no. It's by definition, it's for yourself. Such selfishness has moved us to the likes of personal entertainment devices. I'll tell you, this is, this is hard. I'm about to sound like an old curmudgeon here, okay? This is so bad. I can hear it coming. I can hear my son's conversation right now on the way home tonight. I know it's coming. But this, let me just sound like the old man that I'm becoming, all right? It's so frustrating to try to communicate with someone whose ears are plugged with wires. Right? Huh? 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 It's, it's, anyway, that's, I feel better having said that. We have personal, it started off with the, the, the Walkman. Remember the orange or the yellow Walkman? You put it in, you pop. I remember putting those in the first in my ears the first time and thinking, this is the greatest thing I ever heard. It's remarkable. Then they moved to, to MP3s, iPods. Now they're about this big, and pretty soon it's gonna be a chip behind your eye, or it's gonna be, it's gonna keep moving. Now we have, uh, I guess, in the pretty soon we'll have a, a watch. Again, the entire industry of, of entertainment is based on pleasing yourself with something. The Apostle Paul instructs us that all is to be done to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, hydrate or, or give yourself nutrients, it's all to be done for God's glory. So does that mean we should never involve ourselves in any form of entertainment? No, no, no. I haven't said that. But as we're gonna see, it should mean that we recognize the selfish core of entertainment. It's I, myself. It's pretty simple. I, myself. Secondly, Calculate the high cost of entertainment. Calculate the high cost of entertainment. Here in verse eight, Solomon says, he provided, literally he paid for, he acquired, he purchased these singers. This is another way of saying that he bought them. It cost him something to get them. Now remember what's going on in Solomon's day. There was no radio. There was no DVD player. There was no CD player. Anyone who wanted to enjoy any kind of entertainment, especially music, had to hear it live. You had to have a live band to enjoy music. Solomon said, I I want my own MP3. Need my own Walkman. Need my own Apple Watch Eye thing. I need my own access to entertainment when I want it, so I'm just gonna buy a band. That's the equivalent of if there's a singer or a band that that you really like, just saying, I wanna hear them so much, I'm gonna hire them to only play for me. That's what Solomon did. That's how rich, that's how wealthy he was. Think about the cost for our entertainment today. CDs bump around 15 bucks. Stereo system for the home and car, uh, if it's not stock, can can run 500 to $1,000. Um, movies, popcorn, and Cokes. I told you I'm not a legalist. I went not long ago with my family to see a, see a movie, and um, we decided to splurge. So we got soft drink and popcorn, and I mortgaged my house to get it. <laughs> 
a decent play is approaching 50 bucks or more. Internet service is, is you pay for every month. Computer games can be as, as high as hundreds of dollars depending on the sophistication of it. TVs, DVD, Netflix, Amazon, home entertainment system, books, magazines, on and on and on. We have so much technology uh, coming at us and it all has a cost. Now that's just the monetary cost. Think about the time cost. The time of a movie, the time of a TV show, listening to music in the car, playing video games, wandering around uh, uh, the, the internet to find some, some uh, Netflix that you want to watch. I'm not saying it's all condemnable. I'm saying count the cost. How, how long does that really take? Ephesians 5 tells us to redeem the time. Entertainment can be time consuming. That's not the real cost though. As we'll see in a minute, because this bumps up against what Solomon did here, and it might not be obvious at first, there are moral costs. Does immoral entertainment have an immoral effect on us? Let's ask it this way. Does, does it present sin in an attractive way? Isaiah 5 condemned that. When sinful pleasures and pursuit are present in a desirable way, it's sin. The issue goes back and Christian discussions to at least A.D. 200, if you can believe that or not. Tertullian wrestled with the issue in 200 A.D., A.D. 200, of going to plays that included immorality and immodesty. So this is the, the blood of Calvary's hardly dry yet, and he's already asking these questions. Listen to his words as he reasoned through this issue some 1,800 years ago, all right? He says this, but if we ought to abominate... All that is immodest, on what ground is it right to hear we must not speak? Are we listening to something we don't talk about? Are we watching something we won't do? That's the question he's asking. For all licentiousness of speech and any and every idle word is condemned by God. Why, in the same way, is it right to look on what is disgraceful to do? Let me ask that again. Tertullian. This is AD 200. He says, why is it right to look on what is disgraceful to do? Isn't that a good question? How is it that the things which defile a man going out of his mouth are not regarded as doing so when they go in his, ear, in his eyes and in his ears, when his eyes and ears are the immediate attendance of the Spirit, and that can never be pure whose servants in waiting are impure? You have the theater forbidden then, in the forbidding of immodesty. Now, that's old language. What he's, just, what he's simply saying is, are you entertained by things that you would never do? It's a good question. What sacrifices are we making to entertain ourselves? Here's my question. How do I justify it? Man, it's easy to justify, isn't it? Recognize the selfish focus. Calculate the high cost. Here's the, the key, number three. Beware the true danger of entertainment. Beware the true danger of entertainment. It's right here in the verse. It may not be obvious at first. It says male and female singers. Let me say before we get into this, I love a woman's voice. My wife has a beautiful voice. One of the things that attracted to me first was I heard her humming and thought, wow, that's, that's pleasant, there's nothing wrong with a woman's voice. There's nothing wrong with a woman's singer. I, I, I like hearing girls sing. 
But according to 1 Chronicles 9, 3, Solomon already had a choir devoted to him. It was all men. It was the Levitical choir. But he was not content. This is key. He was not content with God's provision. So he wanted something he did not have. He wanted more. He wanted variety. Male and female singers. The text is explicit here. He had his own private band who would sing and play for him on request. Now you may be asking why we've called this test entertainment rather than just music. Well, music was basically the only form of entertainment in Solomon's day. And the principles of thinking through music and entertainment are identical. But let's talk about music for a minute. Think about this contextually. Solomon learned to love music from his dad. Who's Solomon's dad? Quite a musician himself. He was a skillful musician. He was an excellent singer. No doubt Solomon grew up in a house reverberating with music. Now listen, I love music. I love singing I love playing music. I love listening to music. I have a guitar that I occasionally try to play myself. But we have to ask ourselves why we're doing it and whether or not it is for God's glory. Now, does that mean it always has to be a Christian song? No, no, no. It does mean that whatever we're singing, whatever we're playing, whatever we're doing, doesn't have morals and promote values that are antithetical to God and his word, though. One of the problems with music, like all other forms of entertainment, is that when the song is over, the concert is ended, the CD stops, the MP3 is over, the room or the car is filled with silent emptiness again. We live in a day where silence is not valued very much. It's not even allowed to exist in many places. We surround ourselves with pleasant noises all the time, just about in every place. There was a time, Solomon's time, when only kings and the very wealthy could afford to hear music on demand. Now, is there anything wrong with listening to music? Anything wrong with listening to No, but the point is, Solomon already had a choir, but he went beyond that. Now, is this saying that it's wrong to hear male and female voices? Not at all. Is it wrong to hear women sing? No, not at all. What we're seeing, though, is Solomon wasn't content with what God had given him. That's the only point I'm trying to make. So what do we do with entertainment? Let me just back up for a second and just say, this is not the sermon where I'm, I'm encouraging you to go home and throw your TV out. This is not the sermon where I say, you know, if you go to the theater, then, then you're, um, you're, you're holding hands with the devil when you walk into that building. I heard that as a young man. Um, all, I could, all I could think of was me and the devil holding hands walking in the movie theater. Hey, devil. I mean, it was just this weird... Weird thing that I never, never shook. It just means we're exercising wisdom. It, the, the, the point here in the experiment is, are we using entertainment as an escape, as a way out of thinking, as a way out of thinking very deeply about life, if we're using it to amuse, not think? Why are we doing it? And I am witnessing in my own lifetime the, the dumbing down of sensibilities where you know, watching uh, violence and death and um, uh, sexual encounters and uh, 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 premarital relationships that, that, are, that are tested uh, just like a box of chocolates and not committed to. We're watching that just get so commonplace that we have to stop and say, are we crazy for having the values and morals that we do? 
Bible says we're foolish according to the world. I'm not a legalist. I get so insecure in these sermons. I have a television set. I watch Sports Center this I watch some basketball highlights this afternoon. I, I, I confess it. We're gonna have communion, so maybe I should confess that to you right now. I'm just saying, let's all pull back and say, what, what are our Christian values doing as they collide with our entertainment desires? Morally, time, cost, attention, relationships. So if you go out and say that, you know, Pastor Rick said that all entertainment is wrong, I'm going to sick Mike Walgie on you because he's tallest. No, he's not, but he's a big gelder. He can find you. I'll send Ben Hyman on you. That'll be even be worse. I'm just asking for wisdom. That's what Solomon's doing. Because Solomon said, I tried to get satisfied with this, and it just didn't bring me lasting satisfaction. I mean, have you ever seen one movie and you thought, that's it, I'll never see it again until the sequel comes out, then you're suddenly not satisfied anymore, Right? It's just about satisfaction. Well, that's our experiment, and that's the, the, the simple one. Um, just, just for a second, look down in the verse, in verse 8. I got I to gotta warn you about what's coming with the next experiment. Uh, the pleasures of men, many concubines. It's unashamed, unbashful in saying, Solomon says, I tried... Sexual pleasure, we can surmise, with the better part of a thousand women. What was his conclusion about that? We can know his conclusion to all these experiments because you go down to verse 10. All that my eyes desired to do, I did not refuse them. I just Every time I read that, I think, who can say that? All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. Who can say that? Who has enough time, power, and money to say I can get or do or experience anything I want? Solomon did. My heart was pleased with all my labor. This is my reward for all my labor. I deserve it. I, I earned it. I've got this much money. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, the labor which I had exerted. And guess what? All was Havel. Vanity. Steam off a cup of coffee. He even goes on, striving after the wind. No prophet under the sun. It was, that. it was down in the Sunday school when we get those little toddlers and we blow those bubbles and they keep grabbing them and grabbing them and grabbing them and they look at their hand and nothing's there. That's exactly what's going on here. So what's the takeaway? All entertainment isn't bad. Don't be entertained by, by sinful things that Jesus died for and make sure that it's not uh, creating a cost in your life socially or morally or financially that's unwise, very simple. Now what I wanna do uh, for a second is transition because it, 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 it so um, perfectly is congruent with what we're gonna do in getting our hearts ready for the Lord's table. Turn back over to the book of Haggai. Haggai is a, um, an interesting prophet. He's one of my favorite prophets to study and to look at. He was a prophet who was commissioned by God to speak to the people who were supposed to go back uh, after um, uh, the rebuilding of the temple started. All right, let's all do this together. I can hear the pages. Let's have fun. 
Let's go to the table of contents. It's, if we all, let's everybody do it, it'll be good, okay? Everybody go to the table of contents. I have tabs on my Bible, so it's not fair. We'll go to the table of contents. This is what it's there for. And we, somehow we, we sing the song and think, if I, don't, if I can't find Haggai in the song, then I won't do it. Find Haggai and then find the page number and go there. What we have in Haggai is a very interesting um, scenario. Uh, you know that the, the people are coming back to build the temple. The, uh, the problem is for 18 years, the temple is not built. It's, um, but their houses were. They paneled their houses. They decorated their houses. And God is gracious. He says, consider your ways. He says, think about what you're doing. And he gives them an opportunity to repent. Haggai is a great prophet. This is my my favorite positive prophet because the people repent. It has a good ending. They do, they say, okay, we're gonna get our lives in line. We're gonna stop spending money on our own self, spend it on the temple, get that thing uh, back. Um, They they, uh, finally got all their priorities realigned. But we find something interesting. In Haggai 2, there's a strange command that doesn't seem to be attached to anything. As for my promise, look at chapter two, verse five. As for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. And then he says this, don't be afraid, don't fear. If you're reading through the prophet Haggai, where does that come from? This is what's critical. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of the consequences of obeying God. They were afraid, let me put it in our vernacular, they were afraid if they obeyed God, A, they were concerned that it wouldn't go well with them. Remember what, what had happened when they started building a temple before? It had, had drawn the ire of Egypt and uh, Assyria. They, were, they, were, they, wanted, they said, don't build that temple again. We're gonna come back. Babylon wasn't happy that they were rebuilding it because they'd stolen all the implements out of it. It, it began to raise the, the lightning rod for the surrounding uh, countries that they're gonna rebuild their temple for their God. They're gonna claim that their God is, is great and, and they were threatened not to do it. So they said, we're afraid if we obey Things will happen to us. So they were afraid of the consequences of obedience. They were afraid of what would happen if they did obey. Plus, we also know they were afraid of what would happen, what, what they would miss if they obeyed. If you go back to the first of the book, it says, God says, you, the problem with you're not building the temple is that you're not, um, is not that you're not just building. You are building, but you're building your houses. You're putting a lot of money in your house. You're spending all your money on yourself. You're not spending on the Lord. So he, he said, consider your ways, realign things. In other words, they were afraid if they obeyed God, they wouldn't get what they want. They would miss out on another pleasure. Is that any different than us? We're afraid of what will be, obedience will cause us and we're afraid of what obedience will cost us. If I don't pursue this lust, I won't be fulfilled. If I don't pursue this, this indebtedness, I won't be happy with this materialistic desire if I do this, I'm gonna be ridiculed at work, at school. I'm afraid of what it will cost. I'm afraid of what it will cause. It's the same issue for us. And I think it's something that's really important as we come to the Lord's table to, to just say, what are the issues of obedience that we all know? Um, I was talking to someone before the service and I, and I loved uh, her language. Uh, it was Michelle Foss, i just tell her, I stole your reward in heaven, I hope, Michelle. Hope I didn't. But she said, you know, I'm always thinking about besetting sins. I love that language. It's biblical. In other words, what sins are 
are unique to my own heart, that my heart leans back. And as Jonathan Edwards said, my heart leans back over toward that sin. It's hard to lean toward God because I, I'm inclined back toward those sins or those inclinations. Hebrews calls that our besetting sin. It could be besetting sins. Do you know your besetting sins? I can promise you the enemy of your soul knows them. And if you know them is what keeps us from obedience, thinking about what it will cause us or what it will cost us. Happened in Haggai's day. Happens in this building all the time. What I love about our God is he's so gracious. He says, I wanna remind you to come to the table to think about forgiveness, to think about repentance, to have a fresh start, to be reminded of what, what you can be, what I've designed you to be before me and not to come to the table and be condemned, but to come to the table and be confirmed that you're forgiven. 